This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey there, and welcome to Slate's Trump Care Tracker, the show where we talk about the Republican Party's ongoing slapstick routine in which it tries to repeal and replace Obamacare and remake the American healthcare system as stingier and less generous with fewer people covered by insurance. I'm Jordan Weisman, Slate's economics and policy correspondent. And I'm Jim Newell. I cover Congress for Slate. This episode, we're going to talk mostly about politics, a little less policy this time, because there were some big developments this week. For one, uh, Mitch McConnell decided that after uh, saying that they were going to you know, vote this week or bust, that no matter what happened, he was going to bring his health care bill to the floor. He backtracked. He flinched. He, this, he lost the game of chicken and decided to postpone the vote. This is a big development. This, of course, comes after the uh, very negative Congressional Budget Office score that showed the uh, Better Care Reconciliation Act would leave 22 million Americans uninsured or 22 million more Americans uninsured uh, within a decade. Jim, I want to hear a battlefield dispatch. Just tell me what it was like yesterday as all this went down. Well, it, it sort of changed in an instant. Senate Republicans had this lunch meeting at 1230 or whatever. As senators were coming up for the lunch meeting, John Cornyn, the number two Republican, the whip, was like, we'll have an announcement after lunch, uh, still probably looking pretty good for tomorrow, and we're going to pass it. I asked David Perdue, who's a senator from Georgia, I said, is there any chance that the leaders are bluffing when they say that it's either this week or never? He like laughed. It was like, oh, no, our leaders never bluff. And then like <laughs> half an hour later, they were, you know, the announcement came that they were delaying this this vote for a couple of weeks because they didn't have the votes and they thought that maybe they could talk a little bit more and hope to get there. It was sort of like the moment where this fantasy timetable that they've been working on the last couple of weeks where they're going to release the discussion draft and then six or seven days later have a vote which never really seemed tenable, it sort of just in an instant came crashing down. How much of this had to do with the CBO score, do you think? Because there was nothing especially surprising about that score. It looked a lot like the estimates the CBO produced for the House bills, which isn't too surprising because the Senate bill is not that different than the House bills. You know, it changes around the edges and there are some features that depart a bit from it. But fundamentally, it's not totally dissimilar. So was the CBO really the, the nail in the coffin here or or what was it? You know, I think they would have had to delay it anyway, because I think even without the CBO score, they wouldn't have had the votes. But I think it made it much worse. I mean, it made Susan Collins, who's been saying for the last week, I'll wait to see what the CBO says. And then she gets a CBO score and she's like, yeah, I'm not voting for this. So <laughs> um, she's a pretty hard no. And I think it spooked a lot of the rank and file. I think Bob Corker from Tennessee, just for example, you know, he was like, uh, I looked at this at 4 a.m. this morning and I had a lot of questions. So <laughs> I think even a lot of players who weren't, you know, going to every working group meeting or whatever, look at the CBO score and are like, oh, well, we obviously need to change this a lot. You know, I was just surprised at the CBO score. I thought that they would find a way using some combination of gimmickry and tricks to get a number that was somewhat better than the House bill. I thought that maybe they could find a way 
to get a bill showing 15 million will lose insurance over the next 10 years. I thought maybe they could delay the brunt of the Medicaid pain beyond the 10-year window a little bit or just do something, you know, with by rejiggering the tax credits and just making those a little more accessible to people, but they didn't. And now it's 22 million as opposed to 23 million. And I think, you know, that's a big problem for them. And they actually, they brought in the CBO director to their lunch yesterday and basically just yelled at the CBO director <laughs> being like, you're blowing up our spot here, you know, how, and just like questioning all of his assumptions. So. Poor, poor Keith Hall. Like this guy is like handpicked by the Republican Party to-, to By Tom Price. By Tom Price of all people. He, he's super respected or had been super respected on the right. But, you know, I, there is something a little bit positive here, right? That at least the Republicans- for the most part, seem to a be acknowledging that the CBO is not f- completely full of shit. They're they're treating it like a institution that is worthy of its respect. You know, this is not fake news necessarily. I mean, a few Republicans have tried to go that route. And beyond that, except for like Paul Ryan and a few other hardcore conservatives, very few Republicans have tried to spin this as a positive in any way. You know, Paul Ryan said, "Oh, the CBO report says 22 million people will choose not to buy insurance because we're giving them the freedom not to buy it, unlike Obamacare, which makes them with its hard." mandate. They're basically saying at the Congressional Budget Office is if you're not going to force people to buy Obamacare, if you're not going to force people to buy something they don't want, then they won't buy it. So it's not that people are getting pushed off a plan. It's that people will choose not to buy something they don't like or want. And, you know, in reality, what the CBO says is like, yeah, some people would not buy insurance because they're young and healthy and don't want it. But a lot of them would choose not to buy it because they're fucking poor and can't wouldn't be able to afford right. it under your bill. That's the choice they're making. They're making a sacrifice, not a choice. And it seems like most people on the Republican side grok that they're not even really buying Paul Ryan's line about this. And that, that in a way is almost seems like a victory for, you know, some semblance of reality based politics. A little bit, although there were a lot of Republicans yesterday, especially ones who are managing this bill, who were complaining. And I think that's why they brought in the CBO director. They're trying to convince Keith Hall to, to redo the analysis in a way that maybe looks a little more favorable. Like there are some assumptions in the CBO analysis, like, you know, five states or whatever under current law would expand Medicaid. And yeah. they don't think that that's a correct assumption. And Ted Cruz got up in the meeting yesterday and says, I represent the biggest potential Medicaid expansion state, Texas, and we're not going to do it. And so they were still taking it out. And I, I think they would like CBO to do this in a way that just offers them some more, a little more cover, like break it down, being like this number of people in our 22 million pool wouldn't have it because we're estimating that more states are going to expand these people aren't having it because they don't want to buy it and we're only buying it from the mandate. So there, there, I think there's a little bit more uh, assault on CBO than than ideally. I, I see. I mean, I don't know. The thing about that is even if they were to get CBO to redo it, right, there is another score floating out there. Few people realize this, but um, the chief actuary for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services also did a coverage estimate, did its own score. And it found that 13 million people would lose insurance, basically making the sorts of assumptions that Republicans would like to see. So even under the most favorable set of assumptions that you make, 13 million people more end up uninsured. That's not a good look either. I want to say one other thing about this delay. It makes me a little bit nervous. It makes me think that the Republican Party really, truly does want to pass this bill. Whereas before, when Mitch McConnell was saying, 
hey, we're going to vote this week no matter what, come what may, you know, whether we have 50 votes or we don't. It it seemed like, okay, he just wants to get this done with and move on to tax reform. And we talked about that. But now that he's decided to delay it and try to negotiate side deals with both the moderates and the conservatives, try and eke out that, that, that 50 vote threshold. It seems like he really, really, really believes this has to pass. And he's even been going around telling his caucus that if we don't do this, we're going to have to you know, negotiate something to save the health insurance markets with Chuck Schumer. Like, you know, like, yeah, they you, may have to enter bipartisan policy negotiations. Watch out. Yeah, right. Like the dread clown Chuck Schumer is going to have a say in health care <laughs> policy. It's like Mitch McConnell's acting like, you know, the Republicans are going to have to negotiate with the fucking monster from it or something. You know, he's really seems to be afraid of that outcome. He doesn't want to have to break down and save Obamacare after seven years of criticizing it and saying that they were going to repeal it. So it seems like the repeal to me and tell me if you agree, signifies that actually the Senate Republican leadership is determined to do this. No, I completely agree. This dispels the idea that Mitch McConnell doesn't care about this, that he was going to do his best, see if they could get something done before the July 4th recess, and they couldn't, whatever, move on to tax reform. If he is willing to grant a couple more weeks' time, and they have a lot of other stuff to do in July, then that shows that he thinks that there's a chance this can get done and that he really wants it. And I think it also shows that a lot of members of the conference really want it. And obviously, Donald Trump really wants it. He has no idea what it is, but, you know, he knows he definitely wants it. He has no idea what it is. No idea. It's similar to the House. I don't think that senators are as susceptible to pressure from Trump or from leaders. Uh, Senators sort of have their own individual brands a little bit more. They can't be bullied like some second term House lawmaker. But, you know, I do think that when there's this will to get something done, a lot of things can happen, including the passage of extremely unpopular bills that no one likes and have nothing really good going on for anyone. Like you were saying, Jim, it seems like Mitch McConnell really wants to make this magic happen. What side deals is he potentially going to be making here? Well, I think the side deals, as in throwing money at people, is going to happen more with some of the moderate holdouts. And that's how I read some of the statements yesterday. Two senators, Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, Rob Portman from Ohio, Um, They're both from Medicaid expansion states. Medicaid has been their big concern. They are not happy with the way it was written into this bill. They released a joint statement yesterday. They said that their biggest problems with this bill are that it does not do enough to stem the opioid crisis and that it's too harsh to traditional Medicaid. Yeah. Now, there's this big pool of money. The CBO score for the Senate bill showed that it saved $321 billion. By budgetary rules, they have to save the same amount as a House bill, which is $133 billion. So they have almost $200 billion there to work with to sort of allay these senators. And I think that you could see a lot of that money going toward, one, more money to combat the opioid crisis, and then maybe softening the growth rate on traditional Medicaid, which we you know, talked about in the past. It really, in the out years, cuts Medicaid's growth rate a lot. So I think that's where they'll look to get a lot of the moderates on board. I think conservatives just want more market reforms. They want the elimination of community rating which bars insurers from charging sick people more, maybe some other reforms. There are a couple problems with that. I mean, one, that will irritate the moderates a lot. Two, they also are going to have a lot of trouble explaining that to the Senate parliamentarian who has to decide what is allowed to go into the bill under budget reconciliation. Yeah. But I do think that if this bill is going to pass, you're going to have this sort of grand bargain where the moderates get Medicaid cuts often, the conservatives get some more market reforms. And I, I 
was talking about this with uh, Senator John Thune, who's the number three Senate Republican yesterday. And he sort of doesn't see these things as contradictory. And I think that's the path they're looking on. It's just it, it probably is just a little more nettlesome than, than the way I explained it. So one of the things I thought was interesting about the Portman and Capito statement was that it said that the cuts to me- traditional Medicaid were too steep. It cut it too much. But they didn't say they were against all cuts to traditional Medicaid. They just said, you've got you've gotten a little too close to the bone. So right. that's one of the things that should probably be making Democrats nervous right now. On the other hand, it seems like you've still got Dean Heller from Nevada just clutching on to Brian Sandoval, his governor, and saying <laughs> it's going to be really hard to make both of us get to yes. And he's saying, I'm not going to agree to this bill unless my governor agrees to this bill. Yeah, you sort of. And I, I think the White House I, I, and Republican leaders have begun just sort of negotiating directly with Sandoval, like reaching <laughs> out to him to what would be acceptable to him. What interest does he have, though, in negotiating with the White? I mean, what the hell does Brian Sandoval care about what Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell thinks right now? I don't know. They could maybe threaten to withhold its funding for his reelection. Obviously, they, you know, they get very irritated when a Trump aligned super PAC runs ads against him right now while they're trying to convince him. Yeah, there's some leverage they could apply to him. And um, I know maybe there's some side issues that he cares about that maybe they could work with him on. If they got everyone and Heller was the key vote, that's a difficult position for Heller to be in, too, because he also needs his base to turn out. Yeah. In the election, it's a difficult re-election for him, but he also needs to make sure his voters are out and you don't want to be the guy who stopped the Obamacare repeal. Yeah. So I, I think he's, you know, he may be the key one to watch here. He's the most glaring example, Heller, of just sort of going, running everything through your governor of the expansion state. I mean, Rob Portman is usually a pretty reliable vote for leadership, but he has John Kasich as his governor who expand Medicaid and John Kasich hates this bill. So yes. I guess that's part of why you're still seeing Rob Portman holding out. I figured he would get in line pretty quickly. And I, I think eventually he will. I'm thinking about what you just said and and kind of wondering whether any of the changes we're talking about would fundamentally alter the bill. It seems like not really. At most, you're going to, again, like you said, soften it around the edges. But when push comes to shove, we're we're really talking about little deals that can be made to get the same fundamental bill passed, right? If you raise the growth rate for Medicaid in the long run, I think that's a significant policy change. If you allow states to waive community rating regulations, I think that's a significant policy change. It doesn't, though, change the the fundamental structure of the bill, which is hundreds of billions of dollars in tax cuts financed by hundreds of billions of dollars in Medicaid cuts. I think that's sort of why it's going to be hard to get, say, Susan Collins to get back on this bill, because she... I think is done with the fundamental structure of the bill. But I think others, if you make serious policy changes that, you know, are, are a little bit more than tweaks, you know, it's possible that you could get them on board. What, what about Rand Paul? You know, he seems just completely gone. He called it a terrible bill the other day. <laughs> I just remember him, though. I remember when I was covering this when it was in the House, like he was in going to Freedom Caucus meetings and he was saying things like, you just have to keep saying you're against the bill, OK, because that's where your leverage is. It seems hard for him to walk back some of the stuff he's said, but I also do think, you know, he's he's just trying to make a leverage play. Okay, so we've gabbed a lot about where things stand politically as we go into this break. So I I think we're going to come to our our final segment, which is, is this shit really happening? Where we place a little wager on whether or not we think Trump care will eventually be signed into law. 
I am still a, a deeply pessimistic human being and, and feel like somehow tragedy is just going to have to strike. So I still think, yes, that the law will be passed, that we will all be living under Trump care within a few years. I'm not too certain about it, given how influx everything seems. So I think I'd be willing to bet this lovely box of strawberries I bought this morning at the farmer's market on the way to work. OK, I think I'm going to make some Trump care tracker history today and bet barely that this does not become law. And I am willing to bet not very much. I'm willing to bet a browning container of old guacamole that I have in my refrigerator (laughs) that I need to throw out, but I keep forgetting to throw out because I don't know. It's on my list of things to do. But anyway, that's what I'm willing to bet right now. At least I was willing to bet my lunch. You were literally betting the thing you were going to throw out because it wasn't edible for lunch. I think that aligns with my confidence in this in this projection. I think that's it for Trump Care Tracker today. We'll be back on Friday. Our producer on this show is June Thomas, who I got to say made a horrendous face when Jim brought up his browning guacamole <laughs> over in the booth. I can only like, imagine. If you like the show, please, please, please leave us a review in the iTunes store. And if you have questions or comments, anything you want to say about healthcare, life, love, whatever, email us at trumpcaretracker at slate.com. Again, trumpcaretracker at slate.com. Jim, as always, it's been fun chatting. Yeah, good talking to you. Adios. Bye.